How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're discussing the risks and opportunities presented by climate change or what some call global weirding. The consequences of burning fossil fuels, wild weather, freak storms, floods and droughts, and pine bark beetles devastating forests are grave and bring social and economic costs. Moving away from hydrocarbons to clean energy has potential to create jobs and improve public health. But green energy costs more than brown energy and the way markets are constructed today. For the next hour, we'll discuss the costs and benefits of moving to renewable energy to power our live lives with our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco and a clean tech evangelist and investor. Dan Miller is a venture capitalist who has invested in Solozyme, a biofuel company that went public earlier this year. He gives talks around the country about the dangers of our addiction to oil and the promise or the imperative of finding another way to power our economy. Please welcome Dan Miller to Climate One. Thank you, Greg, and it's nice to be here. I'm going to talk to you today about some choices that we have. And I'm going to start off by basically just making the statement that climate change or global warming is the most important thing that's going to dominate our world in the next century. Now, it's a very big risk, but it's also a tremendous opportunity if we make the right choices. So on one hand, we can have uh, a boom if we pursue new ways of generating electricity and building our economy, or we can have a bust if we don't do that. And I'm going to get into some detail on that in just a moment. But first, I want to just make the point that global warming is not a new idea. Back in the 1800s, scientists were trying to figure out why the Earth wasn't a ball of ice. And they figured out that it's because we have carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and there's just the right amount to keep us just right, just the right temperature. Now, since those times, actually, since the, before the Industrial um, Revolution, there was about 280, 290 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. That doesn't sound like a lot, but it was, again, just the right amount. Since that time, through burning of fossil fuels, we um, increased that to about 390 today. Uh, back in 1896, a paper came out called On the Influence of Carbonic Acid in the Air Upon the Temperature on the Ground. Carbonic Acid is CO2. And uh, this professor who won the Nobel Prize in chemistry way back when, um, just kind of curious, what would happen if we doubled CO2 in the air? And he did the calculations by hand, didn't have any computers, and he kind of got it about right. And since that time, there wasn't a lot of controversy. I mean, it's a scientific thing. If you thought it was wrong, you could prove him wrong. Today, a lot of people are trying to deny that CO2 um, causes global warming, but it's actually kind of absurd. You could all go out to a high school lab and do the experiments yourself to show that CO2 does a very good job of trapping heat. And so while I'm not really going to talk about all the different arguments that deniers use about why global warming isn't real, um, it's kind of kind of it's foolish. It's kind of like saying that gravity isn't real. It's well understood. You can do experiments to show it's real. You can repeat those experiments over and over again. And if you really don't think it's real, you should be able to demonstrate why it's not. And no one's been able to do that. And uh, so, well, I'm not going to go into that. I'm just going to state that. But there's something about climate change that's a little different than other kinds of risks we look at. So in our world today, we do worry about certain things. We worry about uh, terrorism. And we're, we spend billions and trillions of dollars to combat that threat. We worry about AIDS and other kinds of diseases that we might get and might, might hurt us. And we worry about nuclear meltdowns, especially more recently. But these kinds of risks have very low probabilities of actually affecting you. Yet we still worry about them a lot, and we're willing to take government action to combat them or whatever. But they have very low risk of actually affecting you. Climate change, on the other hand, if we don't 
address it has the likely outcome, as opposed to a small outcome, the likely outcome is that it will have catastrophic effects for nearly everyone. So it's really unlike the other kinds of threats that we deal with. And it's kind of funny that, or maybe not so funny, that we spend a lot of time and effort addressing these other threats, yet we spend very little time and attention addressing the biggest threat that we're facing this century. So if you had to know just a couple of things, we're not going to be able to go into like the details of, of climate change. I just want to tell you about a few things that you should worry about. <laughs> so back in 2009, so MIT scientists put out a paper taking a look at the probabilities that we're going to reach certain temperatures by the end of the end of the century. Now, they had to use probabilities because there's so many variables that they can't, you can't know for sure what's going to happen. So they sort of said, well, let's look at it from a probability point of view of reaching certain temperatures. The first thing you need to know is that scientists and politicians and business leaders, everyone agrees we should not go over two degrees Celsius or about three and a half degrees Fahrenheit of warming. We should not let the Earth warm beyond that because we've already experienced about 0.9 degrees Celsius, about 1.5 degrees Fahrenheit of warming so far, and climate change is starting to kick in. We've all seen last this, this year, there's been over $14 billion-plus weather events that have occurred this year when the average is about four, and we've seen droughts and floods and the largest number of tornadoes, and we've seen hurricanes in weird places and things like that. So we, it's actually already occurring. It's already costing us billions and billions of dollars. It's, it's killing hundreds of thousands of people around the world already through drought. And that's just 0.9. Over two degrees, uh, things really start to get bad. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But, but I just want to make the point that everyone agrees we should not go over. Even in Copenhagen, even though not much happened, the thing that did happen is everyone agreed we shouldn't go over two degrees. Now, they haven't done anything about it. So there's a case called business as usual, or what they call at MIT, no policy. We don't do anything, which is currently what we're doing. So the scientists at MIT said that given the current situation, business as usual, there's a 95% chance that we're going to go over 3.5 degrees or 6 degrees Fahrenheit of warming this century. A 95% chance it's going to be that warm or warmer. And there's a 50% chance that it's going to be 5 degrees C or 9 degrees Fahrenheit warming. Now, I know that doesn't sound like much. I mean, you know, if you go out one day and it's uh, 9 degrees warmer than it was the day before, you it's kind of warm, and, but it, you know, doesn't, doesn't kill you or anything like that. But we're talking about the average global temperature of the Earth. Think of it like your temperature, your body temperature. So if you go up a degree or two, you're going to feel kind of bad. You go up a few degrees... You're not going to be able to do very much. You're going to be sick in bed. You go up four or five degrees, you're dead. And it's similar for the Earth, or for our, not for the Earth itself, but for our place on the Earth. Once you go beyond two degrees, things like uh, crop production drops dramatically. Droughts become uh, really terrible. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. And you just have a lot of bad effects, including the fact that it triggers the Earth to start releasing its own CO2, stored up in permafrost and other places, which we'll also talk about in a moment. So you don't want to go past these numbers, and on the current no-policy place, we're, we're on our, on our uh, way there. So that's one thing we have to really be very concerned about. And the other thing is, well, again, talking about what is it that you should care about? What's going to get us? I mean, there's certainly going to be a lot of sea level rise. It's predicted to be six feet or more this century, which is an unbelievable amount. But you can move <laughs> away from the coast. But the thing that's really going to get us, and not way in the future, but 10, 20 years from now, is drought. They say floods kill thousands, droughts kill millions. And the predictions from the scientists about what's going to happen in the United States, well, it's kind of a simple way to put it. What's happening now in Texas today could happen across most of the continental United States in 20 to 30 years. So uh, So Texas right now is in either extreme or exceptional drought. So that compares to the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. So by around the, uh, around the 
2060 time frame, it's expected that most of the continental United States, except for New England, will be in drought that's equal or two to three to four times the drought that existed during the Dust Bowl. And that means we won't be growing much food in the heartland. And that's not good. That's going to, there's going to be a lot of people on Earth. They're going to want to be fed. And it's not just the United States. You look around the Mediterranean, southern, uh, southern Europe. It's, uh, the, Sahara, the Sahara Desert is moving north into southern Europe with uh, climate change. So these are really bad things you really don't want to happen. Mentioned sea level rise. In the IPCC report of 2007, they, they said it might rise about two feet, which is, by the way, a tremendous amount when you think about it, but, but they had a little asterisk next to it and said, well, there's three terms that affect this. We left out one because we're not sure how to calculate it. Well, that was the biggest term of all. That's ice falling off the glaciers into the ocean. And uh, Jim Hansen, who's one of our leading climate scientists who was here at the Climate One a while ago, um, says that we're going to have like about six feet of sea level rise this century. One foot's a lot, by the way. Six feet destroys most of the populated regions of Florida, for example. And then next century, but you know, it doesn't, now the thing to know about sea level rise, which kind of obvious, but kind of shocked me when, <laughs> when it was first presented to me, is that it doesn't go to six feet and stop in 2100. It keeps going. So you can't rebuild. You can't just move inland and build your house inland a little bit because in the next decade it's going to go up another foot or two. So you basically lose a stable shoreline until it finally reaches about 280 feet of sea level rise. And then Florida is literally not on the map. Actually, Florida won't be on the map Next century, or at least the bottom third of it, won't be physically on the map anymore. So these things are serious. And people say, well, you're using models and all this kind of stuff. Well, if you take a look at the historical data, not the models, the historical data, the last time that CO2 was as high as it is today, that's 390 parts per million, the last time it was that high on Earth sea levels were 75 feet higher than they are today. 75 feet higher. Now, they're not going to, it takes time to get there, but it kind of says if we did, if we just stopped where we were, which we're not, we're continuing to go up, that if you just wait long enough, you wait hundreds of years, the sea level will eventually rise to about 75 feet higher. Now, of course, we're going, we're on path to go much higher than 390 this, this century. And that's something to really, really be worried about. And some people ask me, well, what do you worry about the most? Well, the thing I worry about the most in the short run is permafrost, or you can jokingly refer to it as the land formerly known as permafrost. And permafrost is basically frozen organic matter in Siberia, northern Canada, and Alaska, that plants that died a long time ago, but before they degraded and turned back into CO2, they got frozen, just like in your freezer, so they haven't degraded. And they're there. There's the ground all around there. And... Of course, the Arctic, for a whole bunch of reasons, is warming much faster than the rest of the Earth. It's already like five degrees warmer up there already. And the permafrost is melting now. And when it melts, um, it, it forms pools of water. And when organic material uh, degrades in pools of water, it doesn't release CO2. It releases methane. Methane is like natural gas. And methane is far more effective in trapping heat in the atmosphere. There's a lot less of it in the atmosphere, but it's very powerful. In fact, while it's still methane, it's about 70 times more powerful than CO2 in trapping heat. But fortunately, it degrades into CO2 after a decade or so. CO2, on the other hand, lasts in the atmosphere for hundreds to thousands of years. Okay, so it's a really long time. And uh, when that permafrost starts melting so rapidly, it contains within the permafrost about twice as much CO2 as is contained in the entire atmosphere. So you just melt 10% of the permafrost, and you have a really big problem. Now, it's melting now. We don't really see it creating so much methane right now that we're measuring huge influxes. But it could happen later this century, and we don't want that to happen. And so we need to take action now so that we stop encouraging it from melting. And so we really have to get going now, because there's a delay between our emissions today and what happens. That affects what happens 20 to 30 years from now. So we're kind of locked in on the warming we already have, but we really want to avoid the permafrost from tilting. And once that tilts, there's a lot of other things that happen. But let's talk about what's already happening. So there's a bunch of things already occurring that we're already seeing that are bad and could get even worse. First one is 
The ocean is, absorbs about a third of our CO2 that we put out. But as it absorbs more CO2, its ability to keep absorbing CO2 goes down. And that we're measuring today, which means we have to, in some sense, lower our CO2 more than we would think, because the ocean's not going to help us as much in the future in getting rid of it. But also, when it absorbs CO2, it makes the ocean more acidic. It's called carbonic acid. And that, uh, when it's too acidic, then shells can't form. And on these little krill and other animals, it, it's the grass of the ocean, they call it, could start affecting that. It already is starting to affect that, but it hasn't become really bad. They expect it to be really bad later this century. So those are two things that are happening that are really not very good. Collapse of forest. It turns out that um, one of the unknown unknowns, so a long time ago when we knew about climate change long ago, we didn't realize that the bark beetle might, when, when the weather warmed enough, it might actually get two lifetimes in per year instead of one and not die over uh, the, or, or go away basically for the winter time. And it's been killing hundreds and hundreds of square miles of forests in Canada and the United States, and it's on a rampage right now. And wildfires are up several hundred percent in California. We've seen the largest wildfire ever in Arizona this year. It's, it's, these are not subtle things. They are all occurring today. Uh, the, the deserts are spreading in, in Africa, in uh, China. Uh, we are seeing this year in the United States alone mega droughts and mega floods. These are predicted by climate change that you're going to actually have more water when you don't want it and less water when you do want it. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but without going into them, we saw it this year in the United States, in Missouri, in Mississippi. We're seeing incredible drought in the Southwest, which is expected maybe to continue for years and eventually across the entire United States. But already in the, in the Southwest, we're seeing this. Mass extinctions, the background rate of extinctions uh, is, is up in some cases, hundreds to a thousand-fold what the normal background rate of extinction is. And if, we don't, if we're not careful, it could include us in the not-too-distant future. More extreme weather. I think everyone kind of knows that climate change is happening now. We saw it this year, and it was going around the world in places like Australia and Russia before and Pakistan. But this year, in the United States, we saw crazy weather. It turns out that the rare events... I, just, I had coffee with Jim Hansen, who's the foremost climate scientist, last week, and he said that the number of rare events are going up by a factor of 100 already. Last year in Nashville, they had a thousand-year flood, a flood that you would expect to see every thousand years. And we are seeing 500-year floods, 100-year floods happening every few years now. So this is already occurring. And a very scary thing is because of climate change, because when you have a flood or a drought, it impacts agriculture. So because there have been major floods, think of Australia and Pakistan, major droughts, like think of Russia uh, last year, this has already impacted food production. And food production is, is dropping around the world. And food prices have gone up recently. And when you have food prices you ha uh, are high, you have riots around the world. There's actually, MIT just did a recent study correlating those two things. When food prices are high, you have more riots around the world, including the Arab Spring which maybe wasn't caused just solely by climate change, but certainly that was a trigger point. So those are things that are already occurring. What might occur? Well, these are very real possibilities. When you don't have enough food or other resources, you have war. Because <laughs> if you have water and the other guy doesn't have water, they're not just going to hang around there. So that's um, some people claim that Darfur was the first climate change war. There used to be a lot of water there, and then there wasn't any water, and there was a lot of fighting going on there. Abandonment of major cities. When you have six feet of sea level rise, think of Miami and Shanghai and London. All, we build our major cities right on the water for, for a reason. Uh, I already talked about shortages of food and water, but going forward, it could be much worse than it is today. And when you have these kind of impacts, it's not good for the economy. It's already costing us tens of billions of dollars, but it can get into the hundreds of billions, and eventually into the literally the trillions of dollars of cost. And if we're not careful, we can have something that Jim Hansen calls the Venus, the Venus Syndrome, which is um, where it gets away from you, uh, where the, uh, we, we end up like Venus, where we have so much CO2 in the atmosphere, the oceans boil off, and there's basically no life on Earth. That's hopefully a very small probability, certainly nothing in our lifetimes, but it's, I don't think it's something, a direction we want to head in.
So we know the problem is huge, and we know we're not doing much about it. So what can we do? Why, are, why is that? I was really curious. Why do we know the problem is huge and we totally ignore it? Well, it turns out because of um, evolutionary psychology, we learn to focus on thir- certain things and ignore other things. And we need there's six criteria of a threat we need to, to worry about. Think of a lion on the savanna shows up in front of you, right? So it's visible. That's, that's one of them. Climate change is invisible. It has historical precedent. The lion ate your brother last week, and now you're really worried about lions. Climate change is not, well, it's happened 55 million years ago or something, but it's not recently. Uh, the lion is there right now. It's right in front of you. It's immediate. Well, climate change is something that's happening over a period of time. Simple causality. The lion's going to bite your head off. You'll be dead. Climate change is parts per million and CO2 and temperature. It's kind of complex. Direct personal impacts. The lion's going to eat you. <laughs> uh, and climate change, well, maybe it's going to affect other people first. And also caused by an enemy. The lion in this case. So imagine tomorrow you read in the newspaper that all this excess CO2 in the world is being released by Al-Qaeda. And if that was the case, think about whether we would react to that. What would we do? Of course, we would do anything. We would spend a trillion dollars like we just did. And we would go after that. But unfortunately, it's us, so that's that's a problem. There's other denial strategies. People are very good at putting problems out. And uh, there's some like, hey, well, we deserve it, which is... A favorite, or I didn't know, there's nothing I can do. There's a lot of these things that we use. And it actually goes beyond that. Um, one of the big problems about climate change is we think about it as an environmental problem. Environmental problems are kind of far away. They're polar bears in the Arctic, and that's too bad. I like polar bears. But it's not me. It's not happening around on my block. Well, I, I tell people that climate change is an environmental issue, like World War II was an environmental issue. World War II was an enormous environmental issue. But we also realized it was a national security issue, an economic issue. It affected everything. And that's true about climate change, too. Uh, we all, and it's not talking about deniers, we're talking about all of us, deliberately maintain a level of ignorance. Um, we wait for someone else to act first. Oh, what are they going to do then? I'll, maybe I'll get involved. And as a society, we, get, we sort, of, sort of silently agree not to talk about it, which kind of explains a little bit why the media doesn't cover the biggest story in human history. Hardly ever hardly ever talked about. We think of it as far away. It's not now, it's in the future. So what should we do? Well, there's things that you can do as individuals, and there's things that we can do together as a country and as a world. So let's first talk about the things that you can do. So the first thing you should do is ask your children for forgiveness. Because unfortunately, with the climate change that's already built into the system, it's going to be pretty bad from here on in. But it could be far worse than bad if we don't do anything. But still, they're going to say, hey, why didn't you <clears throat> do something about this when you had a chance? You should reduce your carbon footprint, drive a fuel-efficient car, turn down the temperature <laughs> at your house, and you know, all the, buy local. But unfortunately, um, doing those things on your own without acting as a nation won't really solve the problem. It's like sending a check to the government to reduce the national debt uh, over and above. If you send a check over and above what you need for taxes, you will actually reduce the, na- the national debt. It will make no difference whatsoever, but you will reduce the national debt. So even though you can do these things, and fortunately, if we all, most people do them, it will actually have a pretty important impact. But until we act together as a nation, it won't have enough of an impact. Perhaps the most important thing you can do is, first of all, believe what's going on. It's so easy not to believe. You don't want to believe. Learn about it. There's tremendous resources online, books, everything available, Climate One, and engage. Talk to your friends, family, and colleagues. It's very important to multiply your own interest in in the subject, your own engagement. And perhaps most importantly, talk to your elected leaders and get them to take action. Because the things that we really need to do are things we need to do as a nation. And fortunately, they're actually pretty straightforward. So one thing we need to do is to move to 100% carbon-free electricity generation, which means banning coal unless you're capturing all the CO2 that comes out of the plant. We have to do that in the next decade or so. Um, we have to keep the tar sands in the ground. Uh, it's good that uh, President Obama delayed the oil pipe, pipeline. Uh, that has so much carbon up there in Canada. It's second only to Saudi Arabia. If we burn all of that stuff, as Jim Hansen said, it's essentially game over for the climate. That, that would be the end. Uh, you can't get around the 150 parts per million of excess CO2 that that would cause. 
We have to expand research into geoengineering. It's a very controversial subject. Simple geoengineering is putting smoke in the air to block sunlight. That would actually work, but would have some bad side effects. There are good kinds of geoengineering, which simply means sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere and putting it back underground where it came from. The only side effect there is it costs money to do, but it would actually, it's something I think we're going to end up having to do. So rather than saying we have to start these things, we should be researching them so we understand them and understand their good and bad effects and understand how to deploy them when we decide to do that. And the simplest, easiest, and most effective thing we can do right now is to put a price on carbon. Now, that sounds like a bad thing, but I'm going to present to you a way of doing it that almost everyone would like. So it's called the clean energy dividend. And what you do is you put a small but growing price on CO2 at the wellhead, port, or mine where the energy is coming out, the coal or the oil, and you raise that price enough to increase the price of gasoline by a dollar or two a gallon. Now, most people say, well, that's not a good thing. It's going to hurt the economy. What do you want to do? Why are you going to do that? Well, what you're going to do then is the government is going to take 100% of that money, 100% of that money, and give it back to every citizen on a per capita basis. And since the 80-20 rule applies to this, where most people don't use more than the average amount of CO2, uh, most people are going to make money on this deal. And you're going to get paid enough to compensate for the increased energy cost. In fact, you're going to pay more for most people. If you fly a private jet, all bets are off. You're going to end up paying more. But... Um, and you get a half a share of up to two kids. Now, that would actually drive a new economy of renewable energy and energy efficiencies. And I think most people would like it. I think conservatives would like it. It doesn't raise any money for the government. Zero. In fact, it costs the government a little bit of money to, to, uh, to run the program. And so this would cause what I, an economic boom. It would be like, you know, it's something new. It would, it, these markets are huge. Energy is trillions of dollars a year. And imagine new companies starting up. This is what I do in terms of investing. And I can tell you that there's a lot of companies out there that are not getting investment now because there isn't a price on carbon. They're fighting an unfair battle against fossil fuels that are getting not only are we not paying for the bad effects they have, but they're even being subsidized. So it's really an unfair battle right now. We make this small change, which, again, would be neutral for or actually good for most citizens and create New businesses and new jobs would be a fantastic thing for the economy. And it would put the, uh, 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 put the Internet revolution to shame, that's the way I like to put it. And it, besides that, it would also improve energy security. We wouldn't have to fight wars over oil. I mean, there's so many. It would clean up the air. There's so many positive things that it would do. It's, it's, it's almost ridiculous what's happening now where uh, some people argue that we can't actually address climate change because it would cost too much. It would cost jobs. Well, of course, it, it's exactly the opposite. In fact, if we don't address climate change, it will cost all our jobs. But if we do, just imagine taking the money we send to the Middle East to buy oil and keeping it in this country. So I have $500 billion a year. Just think of the jobs that would create. And the people then, you know, buy refrigerators and go to restaurants. It, 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 it multiplies in the economy. And it's been shown that clean energy jobs are um, growing faster than regular jobs already. And certainly in California, I can tell you, it's an venture capital. It's one of the interesting growing sectors of the economy. And we don't have to do this, of course. Well, I think we really should. But if we don't, it's really not a good thing. The International Energy Agency, which is a, um, uh, funded by many governments, so it's not, a, it's not an environmental organization, last week came out with a report that says we have five years left to change the energy infrastructure of the, uh, of the world because if you wait five years, then that energy infrastructure will basically use up all our carbon allowance that keeps us under 450 parts per million, which is tied into the two-degree number. And they say, if, if we don't do this, we will lose forever the chance to avoid dangerous climate change. So we have to act now. And they say, if we don't do this, we're on track for a six degrees Celsius, 11-degree Fahrenheit warming, which you really don't want to go there. So good news is we can still avoid that. We have to take action now. It's action that will help the economy. It would spur economic growth, and and if you do things right, we can even get back to uh, 350 parts per million, which is a, considered to be a safe level, and uh, it will be one of the biggest opportunities ever. So I, did, I went um, pretty quick through this. If you want more information, I have a website, climateplace.org, where there's a lot more references and links and stuff where you can learn more about it. 
But thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Dan. We're going to have a brief pause while we pull this um, podium away. Went through a lot of great material there very very quickly. quickly. (laughs) (laughs) We need to all go out for a drink after this. Um, So uh, we're talking with Dan Miller, the venture capitalist and clean tech evangelist at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, So let's talk about some of the the human and the technological and the policy and economic dimensions uh, that you mentioned. Uh, So you laid out some threats and the opportunity. Do you think that hope or fear are better motivators for the kind of change that you say humans need to take? Or a little bit of both? I think it's both. I think that uh, I think it's been a mistake to only uh, talk about the green is good aspect of it. I mean, I totally believe in the green is good aspect of it. That's what I do in terms of my investing. But I think that uh, fear is a powerful motivator. Um, it got us into Iraq. I mean, that wasn't valid fear. This is valid fear. Um, humans actually react well when they're given a challenge. But in this case, the climate fear, we're not recognizing the fear. So that's perhaps one reason why some people focus on the on the hope. Also, uh, fear can be paralyzing. Well, you know, or overwhelming. The problem is so big, I can't do anything about it. It can be there can lead to paralysis. Like, forget about it. I'm just going to go down partying. That, that's a that's a possibility. I, I, I do think, though, um, I would say that most people don't understand the fear. In other words, they don't understand. No one's told them. The media doesn't tell them. Uh, the president doesn't tell them. Unless you really dig into it, I, I, I meet with climate scientists and talk with them, and I can tell you it's a shocking experience sometimes having lunch with them. And so it's it, while that might happen to some people, I mean, World War II, we didn't just say, oh, you know, we didn't just cower. We, we went out and fought. And and I think it will be a, a great thing. You know, when people all see the, the good side effects of actually addressing it, I think it will be even easier to to address. And will that fear really come home when people have direct experiences, when they see food prices going up or their town floods and they start to make a connection? It's one thing to say Thailand is flooding or Australia is flooding. Like, well, that's over there. That's that. How about the Mississippi and the Missouri? Well, are we living or Vermont? Or yeah. I mean, this is already happening. And and I think that everyone kind of knows. Maybe even those who don't really talk about climate change. Everyone, if you're old enough, you're going, hey. It, it didn't used to be this way. If you're a farmer and you're planting yeah. two weeks earlier than you used to, I mean, if you're an insurance company and you're paying right. out claims more than you used to. So this is actually happening today, and I think most people understand that it's happening. But what they may not understand is that it's not linear. It, it can get, like, be kind of bad, 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 uh-oh. And, and so we really need to react now. And, it, and the uh-oh comes a little in the future. So this is hard for people. And hard gets- for people to react to a problem that's in the future. And it gets really scary when scientists say that we may, there are tipping points and we may not know that we've crossed the tipping points until 50 years after. Right. It might be a nice sunny day when we cross the tipping point with the permafrost, for example. And uh, what we, we do know, I mean, we have an, a general understanding. I mean, I think what the IEA said, you know, five years. Jim Hansen says we have a couple of years left. The t- it's no question that the time, the time to act is now. It's not 10 years from now. That's very clear. Now, is it too late? I can't tell you for sure. But I do think it's worth, uh, you know, taking action. And, and it is sure that the faster we take action, the better off we'll be and the less costly it will be. The IEA said last week that every year we wait costs an extra $500 billion later in, in compensating for the excess uh, emissions. So it's smart to do it now. And so where you look around the world, where do you see uh, hopeful action taking place, whether it's companies, countries? Who is taking the action? Uh, where are the beacons of light? Well, I, actually, there, there is a lot of excitement going on in the clean tech industry. Solar panels are becoming so cheap that they're expected in a couple of years to be cheaper than coal, period. Right? Uh, a company we invested in, Solazyme, just flew uh, the first commercial airline flight in the United States last week running on 40% algae-based jet fuel. So there's a lot of neat technologies out there. And I can tell you with the price on carbon, it'll be amazing. You'll just see so much more happening. It'll be a really exciting time. And there are prices on carbon in Europe. There's one now a little bit in Australia, Alberta, British Columbia. Even California. Even California is starting to. But that price on carbon is, is low. 
and it's not happening happening it's not, and globally. And it's not across the board. And right. So, and by the way, if we do this tax, uh, the clean energy dividend in the United States, we get maybe one other country to, to go along with us, let's say, then what you can do is put an import tariff on, on, on things that come from other countries that don't have that tax. And they'll immediately implement the tax themselves because they don't want to give us the money. They're going to want the money themselves. So there's ways of getting the whole world to follow along pretty quickly once you do it. The idea of uh, you raise a gasoline tax up to a dollar, there was a group of people in California, including former Secretary of State George Shultz, some people from the auto industry. They proposed raising the gasoline tax in California a penny a month. So it's almost unnoticeable. Mm-hmm. Gasoline prices fluctuate more than that already. Sure. penny a month uh, over 10 years seemed uh, not much pain, very gradual. Mm-hmm. And uh, I asked Senator Feinstein about it. No way. The, well, the, but it's no a different thing. If you give all the money back, see, that the government gets the money, right? The government needs the money, so I'm not going to argue this with that. But if you give 100% of the money back to the public, it's a, it's a whole different game. And again, especially when many people would end up with more money than it would cost them. Which would be very popular, basically. Uh, well, I, I don't bribe. think the oil companies or the coal companies would like it, but just about everybody else. Do you think that green technology is, is oversold in some instances? That there's, there's, you mentioned earlier that, that, you know, you didn't use the term, but Joe Rome has used the term here, happy talk. Do you think that there's sort of green hype and sort of this false optimism that, oh, if you just change your light bulbs, everything will be okay? Well, I think, I think there's what's called greenwashing. You know, they buy this towel, it'll help save the planet. I mean, yeah, that, that's kind of silly. But, uh, there is, you know, I mentioned biofuels and, 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 and solar and wind. And, and with electric cars, if you have enough electric cars out there and they have two-way chargers instead of one-way chargers, then they can store enough energy to allow solar and wind to make more penetration because they'll, when, when the sun's not shining or the wind's not blowing, they can release some of their energy from the car batteries. And you don't need a lot of cars to make that a reality. So there's some things that tie together that can make big changes in a short amount of time. But the incumbents, the, the brown energy companies, have so much power in our political system. The, the green companies, the companies you invest in, they're small, they're fragmented. They don't have as unified or large a voice in the political system. You're correct. So <laughs> wh- what are those companies? Well, I think that's why I'm, that's why I'm going around giving talks, why I'm telling people that they need to, uh, to learn and to believe and engage. And, and part of that is talking to their elected leaders and really, really pushing them. I mean, it's, it's, it's really crazy what we're doing now, ignoring this problem. Everybody knows it. It's just, again, it's like high school science. This is not something that, you know, uh, is, is really tricky. And we're ignoring it to our peril. It's a clear and present danger. And politicians, you know, there's, it's very short-term focus. So the only way to change that is to raise the issue. If the media was covering it more, the politicians would have to address it more. If the public was more engaged, if they understood the dangers ahead and the fact that there's so little time left, then they would be more insistent on this. And I think that's what we need to do. So we sort of have to do everything. But one important thing is to get the public to understand the problem, get the media to understand the problem, get politicians to understand the problem. They're probably going to be a little more reactive than proactive. Now, you know, sometimes in history and wars and things like that, the government is proactive. And I would like to see that, too. But unfortunately, that hasn't happened yet. Dan Miller is a venture capitalist and a clean tech evangelist. Uh, you're listening to Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, there are some countries, though, that, that, that are doing more. Do you see more hope in, in Europe? They have a price on carbon. European countries kind of get it more than the United States. Perhaps the, they don't have uh, the kind of cash-and-carry government that we, we have here. <laughs> and even in China, where they're doing tremendous things in clean tech, they're the largest solar panel Manufacturer now the largest wind, but they're also building like lots of coal plants. So they're kind of doing it both ways. Um, I think it's really important for the United States. You know, say, a lot of people say, well, we shouldn't do anything until China and India do, does something. Well, I think it's kind of crazy because they're going, what, you mean you're not going to do anything? You've done your, done your industrial revolution using dirty fuels and you want us to... To, to clean up our act before you do? I mean, it's kind of an absurd thing or to say. Or as China says, you want us to pay for the sins of your grandfather. Yes. And people say, well, China's a bigger emitter than we are now, and that's true. However, what matters for climate change is how, what's the total amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, and it doesn't really go away. And from that measure, we're still by far the biggest contributor to climate change. And we are certainly per capita, per person. Per capita by a lot, yes. de- Developing countries point out, per capita, the U.S. is still 
uh, way on top. Way on top. Uh, you wrote a column once that comparing climate change to the challenge or spatial challenge or disaster. What, what are the connections there? Well, when the Challenger blew up, you know, took a look at it. There was actually even a movie about it. And it turns out that you know, the, uh, the temperature that next morning was pre- predicted to be 26 degrees. And the, 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 the um, allowable temperature for launch was 40 degrees. So, like, you know, you would never even think of launching in that situation. But what happened was NASA, there was a lot of pressure to launch on time. President Reagan was going to be giving a talk that night. There was a teacher on board. And so they went and they asked, uh, they went around to the, the rocket company, went around to all the companies, but to the rocket company and said, uh, do we have a go for launch? And an engineer said, no, you can't. It's too cold. And they said, can you prove that it's going to blow up? They said, well, no. But, you know, the data shows it's really too dangerous. And they said, well... We're going to call back in half an hour. We expect a different result. And they dismissed him, and the manager said, okay. And that guy thought it wouldn't clear the launch pad, but it did, but, but not, not by much. And so he was, they were asking the wrong question. They were asking to prove the disaster. Like, you know, you don't get on an airplane and say, well, I'm going to get on it as long as you can prove, uh, uh, <laughs> you know. Prove it's going to... It's, yeah, you can't prove it's going to crash. I'll get on, even though it's missing two engines. I mean, you know, you don't do that. So it was the wrong question. You have to. You can't prove it's going to be okay, but you have to demonstrate that it's going to be okay. And with climate change, we certainly can't demonstrate. In fact, climate change has such a higher probability of catastrophe. If if your airplane had a hundredth of the probability of disaster, you would never put your children on it. And of course, all of our children are on this one. So it's really a critical thing. We've had military people here who who say, well, if you wait until, in the military, if you wait until you have full certainty, you're dead. You have to act on what is, you know, intelligence, so something, probability. And uh, the military is doing more than just about anyone, actually, right now. They they understand that it's a threat multiplier. Uh, they, they, they know that the wars of the future are going to be caused by climate change. Uh, the Navy uh, is wants to be have 50% biofuels by 2020, which is actually helping to drive the industry forward. So they're actually, they, they know. They don't have the political issues that the other people have. We're talking about clean energy with Dan Miller at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, let's put our microphone up here. We'll invite your participation. Again, if you're on this side of the room, please go through the door over there where Jane, Anna, and Renee are. And uh, we'll invite your participation. Quick comment. Uh, one one part uh, comment or question. This is often the, uh, the best part of the program. So uh, welcome you to come up in and... Uh, and, and do that while, uh, while, while we get that going on. Um, what leaders, other than Jim Hansen, who you've mentioned, what leaders acting right now do you really respect who feel are out front and, and, and making the call and, and making the charge that you think ought to happen? Well, Bill McKibben's done a fantastic job at uh, 350.org. He, he organized the arrest in front of the White House uh, a month or so ago and very recently uh, surrounding the White House with protesters about the uh, Keystone XL pipeline, which has now been delayed by President Obama, I think you have to say certainly uh, partially due to uh, Bill's efforts. So I think that's a great thing. Um, gee, <laughs> there's not the enough, fact, I think. The fact that Bill McKibben also had large Democratic donors uh, as well as regular citizens uh, certainly had an impact there. It was the number of people as well as uh, the, the socioeconomic status of the people that were there. There, there were protests uh, outside Democratic fundraisers. That I think that really got their attention. You know, it's, con- it's considered a political issue. It's kind of funny. I mean, we're talking about high school science. I mean, you know, gravity is not usually a political issue. You know, why is climate change? Well, I, I, I think the reason is that uh, conservatives, their, their base philosophy is to not have government interference in your life, not to have, you know, lower taxes and all this kind of stuff. Well, if you believe in climate change, for the moment you believe in climate change, and then you look at what are the solutions. The only solutions that work involve government intervention in your life. They have to raise the price of carbon, et cetera. So, so you have to step back and say, well, I guess I don't like where that's going, so I'm not going to believe this, even though it's proven you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt. So I think that's what's driving that political discord, but it, it doesn't really make sense. And some people would say it's not a belief, it's a fact, but uh, let's have our first audience question. Yes, <laughs> Um I had an idea for how you could reach people individually because I think that is the problem. And um, let's just suppose one form of this is that you have Internet, you have uh, Facebook, Twitter, and you have uh, Google Maps, and you see picture sent individually to every household that's in danger, which is 
at this point, a huge amount of the population because most of the population lives along the coast. Mm-hmm. And you, you send it to this address, these people, address all the children, this house, picture of your house, and then what will happen to your place. Mm-hmm. And if that has a big press behind it, maybe the people in that area can organize mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And really influence because one of the real problems is that, as you said, you have trillions dollar industry opposing you, and they are extremely influential. And even if everyone really wanted to do something, it's very hard to break that barrier. And this might just do it. Well, there are a few things on that. First of all, the people who work for oil and coal companies, they have children too. So I don't actually fully understand all of this because I, you know, pretty smart, and I think to some extent they must believe what's happening. But um, except, not except. But uh, there are some interesting things going along that way. Uh, uh, Climate Central is a group that uh, putting together information. Uh, they cover the different weather events and tie it into climate change, and then provide that information to to weather men and, we- and weather women in the local areas. And that they found to be quite effective so far. But it's not spread out enough yet. So there are. There, I think that is a good way to make it personal. I think we have to try everything. We have to talk about it globally. We've got to talk about it locally as well. There's also a local example. Uh, there's been some new uh, Federal Emergency Management Association maps that show flood zones, which require people to buy flood insurance. Mm-hmm. Some people with multi-multi-million-dollar homes in Belvedere say, no, we don't want to buy insurance. We want the government to, to uh, sell bonds, to put dikes, to protect Belvedere. Some pretty interesting stuff among very affluent people. We're going to have to make some tough decisions in the yes. future. We're not going to build a dike around Florida, though, all of it. Yes, my name is Jeff Potter. How do we avoid repeating the situation that occurred with the corn-based uh, biofuels, which were later shown to be generating more CO2 than they were saving and creating a uh, food shortage around mm-hmm. the world uh, as a result of George Bush's program to give a lot of money to his farmer friends? Well, I, yeah, I think ethanol, uh, corn-based ethanol is kind of considered version 1.0. Uh-oh. You know, tried it. It had some interesting developments. It's a big part of our energy supply now. But you're right. It has a little, if negative, uh, impact on the climate. And so going forward, there's a new set of uh, biofuels that uh, you can use sugar instead of uh, sugar cane instead of corn, and that actually is still sustainable for the most part. There's a lot of it down in Brazil, for example. And then in the next five years, there'll probably be a transition to what's called cellulosic fuels, which are not using the corn, but using the corn stalks and using the leftover parts of uh, the plants that are just thrown back on, down on the ground. And uh, that can provide sustainability for a while. The, the folks who run Solazyme, for example, think all of us should drive electric cars. I mean, they can make a lot of biofuels, but they also know they can't make enough to totally replace uh, all the oil. But if we go to electric cars and clean energy, electricity generation, uh, and you double the efficiency of trucks and planes, then actually biofuels can, in a sustainable way, address that market. But it's um, except the, the corn thing is a problem now. But uh, I think in the future, if we're careful, we can make intelligent choices. Yes, ma'am. Next question. Hi. We know that... Um Climate change is a positive feedback system between permafrost, and we know that oceans and wetlands store carbon as well. But between acidification and as well as the sea level rising, we're going to be losing the storage. So my question is, how do we store carbon, like, terrestrially, like, on land? I'm just curious if we are going to move towards that or if that's even going to work, or how would we do it? Well, I had uh, a dinner last um, week with uh, Professor Klaus Lackner of Columbia, and he's one of the world's experts on capturing carbon right out of the air. Is he the one who has these trees? That the artificial, artificial tree. Trees, they don't look yeah. like anything like trees now, but, yeah. but still, it, the concept is similar. And um, it turns out there's a lot of storage underground. There's a lot of um, uh, oil wells that have been depleted. There's even aquifers that we can use for this. So it is possible to take CO2 out of the air or, or out of a uh, coal plant, for example, and put it back underground safely. Uh, maybe you have to be careful about it, but it turns out there's a lot more storage than we need, at least in the, in the short run. So that's that's one way to do it. The other way is just grow trees. Trees are made out of CO2 out of the air. The more trees we have, the less CO2 is in the atmosphere. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons. People say, well, it's natural. There used to be a lot of more CO2 in the atmosphere. That was true. Before there were plants, there was a lot more CO2 in the atmosphere. And then plants came up on Earth, and that basically took CO2 down. 
and uh, we, we, can, we need to, to do all of these things to reduce CO2. Because one of the challenges of the, of the you know, sucking uh, carbon out of the atmosphere is just the scale that's needed. I mean, think about how many trees would need to be planted or how many of the Columbia professors' uh, devices would need to deploy. I mean, you need, well, awesome. you need about 100 million of them, and that sounds like a lot, but think about how many cars we make every year, and it turns out it's not that big a problem. It, he, he estimates it would cost about a trillion dollars a year to to eliminate all of the CO2 we put out every year. Now, you actually want to do more than that to bring the CO2 level down. But a trillion dollars a year is about a 60th of the worldwide GDP. Sounds like a lot of money, but I think that's the, the best bargain we're ever going to be offered, actually. Uh, yeah, insurance policy. Insur- great insurance policy. That. Yes, sir. Dan, thanks for your presentation. How realistic do you think it is for the government to hand back 100% of an oil tax to help stimulate the economy? It's not a tax. It's a fee, but okay. <laughs> um, it's not a tax. It's not going to the government. So, so I, I think it's, I think it's, you know, the public would like it. I don't, you know, I think there's a lot of political wrangling, but I, I think this is actually something that conservatives could be behind as well because it doesn't increase the size of government. And it doesn't pick winners or losers either, right? It's just, it's just putting a, a fee on the bad thing, that thing we know we don't want. It's not saying what to replace it with. So the market will determine that with new innovations and things we haven't even thought about yet. And things like this would make this sucking carbon out of the air thing cost-effective, actually. Right now, there's no market for it. Why would you do it? Who's going to pay you? No one. But if you could do this and you could do it for less than that extra fee, then the oil companies would build these systems to offset their oil. And you would end up buying carbon-free fossil fuel, which sounds like an oxymoron. But you could end up doing these kinds of things. So there would be tremendous innovation. And so I think it's something that, if you really thought about it, it's really not a bad idea. And there have been proposals in Congress. I think Senator Cantwell, Pete Stark has. There's various but, but, bills. But not 100%. They were like 75% rebate. So, so right, I think so it has to be 100% just to get through the political process. And it makes a lot of sense. It would generate revenue for the government through increased tax revenues because the economy would do better. But it wouldn't do it directly from the fee on, on the CO2. Might say it's wealth distribution. That would be one argument. But it's well, okay. elegant. But it's elegant. putting a fee on the bad thing and, and letting the market correct it. Let's have our next uh, question for Dan Miller at Climate One. Uh, good afternoon, Dan. Uh, excuse me. My name is Renee Mendieta, and uh, thank you for your sobering presentation. And I think I will join you for that drink because uh, <laughs> that stuff really makes me uh, very nervous. Uh, one quick thought uh, that I've always had, and I never really hear that often, is that it, uh, if the uh, buggy whip industry had the, the power of the oil companies, we'd still be driving horse-driven carriages. Um, I agree. One, one point is, uh, one, I got two quick points. One is um, um, the book, The Long Emergency by James mm-hmm. Kunstler. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that book. Yeah, one of the, it's a real difficult and very complex book, something you probably have to read a couple of times, maybe three. Um, I just read it once. Any and one of the things he talks about is that, um, that even with all the new renewable energy strategies that we have in place, we need, we, we need way more to be able to meet the kind of energy needs that we have now. And so so he's very pessimistic about the, out, the future outlook for renewable energy. And the question would be whether we have really done the measurements to determine whether renewable energy really can replace fossil fuel energy, let's say, within the next 25 years. Um, I think, I think the, answer is, uh, the answer is yes. And there's been some good articles in Scientific American that cover this. Again, if right. you can end, end up with energy storage, then wind and solar. Again, solar has been an amazing cost drop of solar over the last 10 years. And, and it's expected to continue. And once it gets, like even by next year, it should be cost competitive. Now, you do have the energy storage problem. But again, with electric cars or some other uh, methods, you could do it. And so I think... Um, you know, we don't actually have a choice. I mean, it's like, you know, <laughs> when you understand what happens if you continue using, I don't even understand the argument. If you understand what's going to happen by continuing fossil fuels, it, it, it doesn't make any sense to just keep arguing, but we have to keep using fossil fuels. Well, no, you can't. So now, now let's find some alternatives. And I'm very confident that if the right incentive systems are in place, that we will find those alternatives. Yes, sir. Next question for Dan Miller. Yeah, so um, your carbon fee seems like such an obviously excellent idea. Why is it not in place yet? Well, there was a lot of focus on cap and trade up until very recently, and that didn't make it. Actually, Jim Hansen thought it would never actually re- end up reducing <laughs> CO2. 
too complex, uh, too many ways out of it. And so now that that just recently failed, there was a fresh look at new ideas, and this is one of them that's popped up since then. And it's, again, again, it's been introduced in various forms, but I don't believe in this 100% kind of rebate uh, Were approach. Were you pleased that cap-and-trade failed? Do you think it was fatally flawed? I have to say, at first, I was supporting it because I felt, yes, we are bribing the oil companies and the coal companies to, to come on board by giving them billions of dollars of credits. But I said, well, that's okay as long as we get this thing in place. And I figured it won't be good enough now, but we'll, we'll get scared later and we'll have the thing in place. And talking to Jim Hansen a bit, and he basically explained why it wouldn't even work anyway. And then, so I was actually not that disappointed that it failed, but I'm very disappointed that we don't have something in its place. We don't, again, the time is of the essence. We don't really, we can't wait 10 years to do something. Uh, by the way, I'm quite confident that within these next 10 years, everybody will know that climate change is real. They won't have to listen to this talk or read a book. We all know somewhat now. But we're going to see the kinds of weird weather that we've just seen. And you'll hear more about it in your, your next talk. That people will really know it's going on. You know, when you have a thousand-year flood two years in a row, <laughs> then that doesn't make any sense, right? So people will understand, and we all know now. I mean, science know now, and it's pretty obvious. But people still look at these weird things as random events. And it's really not so random anymore. Let's have our next audience question for Dan Miller. Thank you, Dan, for speaking. And uh, I guess when I hear you, it sounds a little bit like telling people about washing their hands and how there are these things called viruses and uh, <laughs> microbes which can get you sick. Uh, the other side of the argument, that, or what I see the oil companies doing more and more, because I was just recently in West Texas, the Pecos, is uh, technology, bringing in technology like fracking, where nowadays they're being more efficient in gathering from the earth the uh, carbon that's trapped there. And so when you talk about, you know, we're, we're going deeper into the oceans, we're, we're seeing environmental destruction just in getting the oil itself, um, I, I, I feel like we need to move a little quicker because the oil companies are moving quicker to get these deposits out and into the air. So. Well, actually, it's funny. Um, a study came out about a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago, that said if we – so natural gas has always argued it's cleaner than coal. You get about uh, – it has half the carbon CO2 output for a kilowatt that coal does. So it's better from, in terms of generating electricity, put less CO2 in the air. But a study came out about a month and a half ago that said if we switch all of our coal plants to natural gas tomorrow, the temperature would immediately go up and stay up higher for about 75 years before it finally started to go down because of less CO2. And the reason is that coal plants put out a lot of smoke, and smoke reflects the sun away. It's one of the geoengineering techniques, put artificial smoke in the air. But we put smoke in the air all the time. The, the thing is, as, as Jim Hans told me in a previous thing, which always tells me something shocking, he said, so what we're doing, and it turns out that, we're, that the smoke in the air, not just coal smoke, but the other pollutions we put in the air, reflects about an, enough sun away to reduce the warming effect by about half. So there's a certain amount of CO2 in our atmosphere, about 40% more than there used to be, bigger, thicker blanket around the Earth, think of it that way, and it would cause a certain amount of warming, but we're only seeing half that warming because... There's another effect. The smoke is reflecting it away. But as Jim Hansen said, we're, we're putting up in the atmosphere a molecule, CO2, that lasts for hundreds to thousands of years. And we're compensating it partially with molecules of smoke that last in the atmosphere for a few weeks. And someday we're going to clean up the atmosphere, one way or the other. And then it said our Faustian payment will be due. And so this is, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of complications in this. And, and things that you think are obvious things to do are not quite so obvious sometimes. But, and in fact, there's some thought that, you know, they seem to be a little bit of a pause in the warming in the 90s. And that's when China was building coal plants, like, every week, several every week. putting up, and, and, and China was blanketed with smoke during this time. And um, so that, that could explain a little bit of the pause. But, but it can't, you know, it's not a good thing to <laughs> just keep hiding the problem. It's not fixing the problem. It's just hiding the problem a little bit. Not a lot of good choices. Uh, yes, ma'am, let's have the next audience. Well, there are, there are, the good choices are really clear. I mean, if you put a price on the carbon, then it's less competitive with wind and solar and all these other alternatives. Those are good things. Those don't have the downside that, that coal has. Okay. Uh, 
Thank you, Dan, for your inspiring talk. Uh, my question, one thing you mentioned was um, that we have five years left to change our energy infrastructure. Um, and so my question has to do with um, seeing that the next president and the cooperation from Congress is going to be very important in moving our agenda forward. What is your response um, if a Republican candidate such as Rick Perry gets elected, someone who is skeptical of climate science? <laughs> Pretty funny that Rick Perry you know, doesn't believe in climate change when his state is the poster child for climate change. Um, Fires, droughts, sure. Well, you know, we can do the wrong thing. We have been doing the wrong thing. I mean, I'm not... To me... Um, this is a pretty obvious choice. The, the downside of not addressing climate change is really not a place anybody would want to go if they understood what it meant. No one, including Rick Perry. The alternative of doing something about it would not only address this really bad thing down the road, but would actually be good for the economy, be the right thing to do in many, many different levels. So, so to me, it's, it's, as I said, tell people, like if you're driving your car and you see there's a cliff up ahead, you have the choice to step on the brake or not and not go over the cliff. That's a choice. I guess it's a choice. It's not really a choice. <laughs> You're going to step on the brake. I think that people don't understand that there's this cliff up ahead. And if we and if people did understand, including a Republican president or something, if, once they really understood this, and, you know, there's a well-funded disinformation campaign, it's the same folks that did the tobacco disinformation that says, well, we're really not sure. Well, no, we're as sure as you need to be to make the decisions right now. So I also think that uh, even though it doesn't seem like it now, there's a tremendous change, even in the last two years in the media. Two years ago, any story about climate change would immediately have a line that says, but deniers say it's not true. That's gone now, because everybody kind of knows it's happening. You can see it every day. And so I think there's going to be a continuing shift over the next few years where it's just going to become so obvious that even even deniers are going to, you know, change. And I think another important shift that will happen is that people will no longer think that wealth will insulate them. Some right. people think that if I live on a hill and a certain climate, uh, that, that yeah, Bangkok and Africa might get flooded and droughts, but uh, Pacific Heights will be okay. And A lot of expensive right, property right on the coast, by the way. There's that. But people <laughs> think that somehow it, that wealth will insulate them. And then people start to think about, well, where does my food come from and how interconnected the global economy is? And then it starts to, to collapse. You just take a look at the drought maps of 2030, let, let alone 2060. And you just see what the heartland looks like at that time. And basically, it's what's happening in Texas today is spread across the rest of the country. You know, it, it's not going to be a good economy then. Yes, sir. Uh, well, my question revolves around the carbon fee, which I love that idea. I'm wondering if it wouldn't be quite an economic shock to our whole economy if you add that cost in and the people have to wait a year to get no, the rebate. No, you get a check every month. That's better. I like that. Right in your bank <laughs> account, by the way. So, it's just, yeah, that, that's one of the I, – I didn't get into all the details. There's a few little adjustments to it to make it sort of an easier transition and things like that. And, again, you don't start off with a high price – you, you, you start off with uh, gradual. a gradual, not as gradual as the one cent a month thing necessarily, but, but something gets you up there pretty quick, but it, it doesn't just kick in right away. I mean, well, it kicks in, but with, not with the full price. But you get up there pretty quick, and then if things are going well, then you can stabilize. If it's, if it's still not good enough, you can keep ratcheting it up. But again, all the money goes back to the public, so it, it infuses the economy with, uh, with, with the right choices. And I think the way you designed it is that it was taxed on a relatively few uh, entities, that right. far what they call upstream. So it's refiners and power Mines. plants. It's a yeah. couple hundred. And California went after a couple hundred entities, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's not, not, not people aren't going to be paying it at the pump, but it's far upstream. So. Right, right. Well, it's, in, it's reflected in the pump, of course. Sure. The cost gets passed but, but down. The, but the fee is collected at, at the mine or the well. And then... Uh, and then again, you get the money every month, so you're, you're well protected in terms of paying for the higher prices. Now, you're actually not going to pay that full higher price because the alternatives will kick in. So the lower-cost biofuels will be there, or energy efficiency will kick in so you don't burn as much heating oil, or these kinds of things would happen. So you don't actually, that's what's, and that's what you want to happen. That's the whole reason you're doing it, is to get you to avoid buying the bad thing and move to the good things. And those good things, while they might be a little more expensive then the bad thing used to be will be less expensive than 
the bad thing will be with the fee on it. We're coming to our end of our program here with Dan Miller. Let's end and talk about, you talk about future generations and children. Um, have you apologized to your children? Yeah, my kids see me doing this all the time. And I, I, um, <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 I don't talk to them. I have a young daughter and things like that. Sure, I, it can I think be very scary. We have a, a program at the Chabot Space and Science Center, Bill Nye's Climate Lab, which is targeted for kids. It doesn't have the stuff I talked to you about today. <laughs> it's all about opportunity and innovation, about the opportunity presented by, by going after the carbon and getting it. And so I think there's a way to talk to kids about this that, um, you know, we, they need to focus on math and science and engineering so that, you know, unfortunately, no matter how much we do now, we're going to still be leaving a big problem to them that they're going to have to deal with. And so... Um, Having skills that allow them to adapt in a, in, a, exactly. in, a, in a chaotic, hot world. And I think there's... So if you're a young person now and you're looking for work, I would suggest thinking about, hey, what's the world going to be like in five years? What industries are going to be important then? And there's a lot of cool things you can do now. So, and also people say, don't you get depressed or something? And I say, well, look, we all know we're going to die someday. But you don't go around living your life going, oh, my God, I'm going to die someday, you know. So, yes, there's these really big problems. And I, I think you can get even excited about trying to address them. Um, it's daunting at times. But, uh, but I think that, you know, I, I wouldn't be optimistic, but I would have hope, Right. There's a difference between the two because optimism, then you don't have to do anything, you know. <laughs> but but with hope, you can you can work hard. What is the saying? That optimism is a verb with your sleeves rolled up. So let's <laughs> let's uh, end it there with our thanks to Dan Miller, the venture capitalist and clean tech evangelist, for coming to Climate One today. Thank you all for coming. Thanks everyone. Thank